Remain standing for the gospel lesson, and the gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, chapter 23, and I will be reading verses 1 through 49. Now, this is a long lesson, so if you want to sit down before we commence, uh, some of you can. If you remain standing, that'll be fine, but if you have problems standing, uh, please feel free uh, to be seated. The lesson, then, is Luke, chapter 23 verses 1 through 49, and we will be reading about the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel of St. Luke. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends because this, before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then released. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who was thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they had asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, 
Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren woman, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, uh, today I'm going to attempt to preach from a text, this one. That is the longest text maybe that I've ever preached from. Now that's a scary thought, isn't it? Long text, long sermon. Take heart. I still plan to stay within my ordinary limits unless the Holy Spirit leaves me otherwise. <laughs> this is not only Palm Sunday, it is also Passion Sunday. I almost always have preached a sermon on Palm Sunday because the material is shorter. It's easier to handle. Uh, but I decided to preach on the cross of Christ today. He was crucified, after all, in weakness, as the title of my sermon says. And so this uh, opens up the text in Luke 23, I mean uh, 23, with some very special information that he alone provides in the Gospels. But I'm going to uh, try to telescope this for you. Early in that week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, on a donkey, to the acclaim of the crowds and the shout 
of Hosanna. And um, as he wrote in, of course, he, uh, he was received. But by the end of the week, he was rejected. It was a most faithful week indeed, wherein Jesus is crucified just before the Sabbath day. In this sermon, I want you to see one simple truth that what human beings or man intended for evil, God has intended it for good. To paraphrase Joseph, and I just did, sometimes we intend things as an evil thing to do or to seek what we perceive to be justice or to get back at somebody. They shouldn't get away with that. And in our injustice and heat and recklessness, uh, God may very well use uh, that to his own glory. There is a verse which says uh, that the wrath of man is to God's praise and the remainder thereof he restrains. So in other words, at the point of the world's greatest evil, and that really is what is being described in Luke chapter 23, the greatest evil, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, God brought forth also the greatest good, his saving and restoring salvation that he extends to rebellious sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. And he does it for his own glory. Jesus had already been arrested, beaten, mocked, and insulted by the soldiers before we get to chapter 23. He has already appeared before the Sanhedrin and questioned. And as chapter 23 begins, we find Jesus now standing before Pilate, the Roman governor of Judah, already falsely accused. The charges are trumped up. And here he stands before Pilate, who knows really what is going on. Pilate, though, is pictured as a weak man, an insecure man, and that is the way that he is depicted throughout the Gospels. He is not a strong man of strong character, just the reverse. He bows finally to the pressure that is put upon him, not only by the Sanhedrin, but by the crowd. He could not resist them. The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish tribunal that had the greatest legislative and judicial authority in the land, except they did not have, they did not have the authority in capital offenses. Therefore, that had to be done by the Roman governor. That's why Pilate is involved. Still yet, we, we see this man, Pilate, bowing to pressure. He did pass the sentence, the ultimate sentence, that a Roman governor could pass, and that was crucifixion. Crucifixion has been sanitized, if you will, by modern people. We hear it, we see the cross, we see the cross outside, uh, we see cross hung around people's necks, we see the cross being worn as jewelry in many and various ways. And it's almost taken, if you will, the horror and the shame 
out of what the cross really is. But in Jesus' day, to be crucified, that is sometimes to be impaled on a stake, or to be crucified in the way that he was, with the crossbars across the stand-up post, was reserved for criminals. And it was a cruel way to die. Jesus' feet, no doubt, were together. We, we now have pretty conclusive evidence that his feet were nailed together in one place with one nail as well as his hands. And he hung there. Now, this is a kind of crucifixion that they only reserve for the, if you will, the most heinous crimes and criminals. And the reason is because it was a shame, even in the scriptures. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, it's a cursed as anyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus really is accused of being seditious. One who is trying to overthrow the government, one who falsely claims to be the king of the Jews, and who is rightly, rightly to be crucified and to be shamed. More than that, he's also beaten and punished to a degree that most criminals would never have been prior to his crucifixion. And this is what Pilate consented to. This is what he did. This is what the crowd wanted at that time. I'm sure that some of the people in the crowd who cried for his head also at the beginning of that week uh, cried in adulation and shouted, Hosanna. Now, the first point that I want you to see is simply this, and it would not ordinarily be preached on in uh, a sermon like this, but I do want you to see something about human nature. You know, human nature and the study of it is maybe the most important thing uh, that we can do in this life. And human nature can be studied through general revelation, if you will, psychologists, psychoanalysts, uh, all kinds of people, including ordinary people like you and me, can analyze human nature. You see, human nature is subject to reason and experience. And we can use those tools to understand people and understand what we are. We don't do that today. And of course, we, we, we pretty much are letting loose forces that will destroy us in the future because we're ignoring the way human nature really works. All utopianism is based on a false view of human nature. It does not understand human nature, and it refuses to do so. John Q. Wilson, a wonderful, wonderful sociologist and philosopher who now passed away a few years ago from California. He used to teach at Harvard, did a wonderful work in the area of criminality and on human nature. And if we don't get that right, we, we, we get everything else wrong. And here is a bit about human nature. Those we find who are most cruel and most vicious, as to their ordinary character, usually are the weakest. Pilate was such a man. The scriptures picture him as a man who caves in, who's insecure and weak, really. He caves in to the forces that keep him in power. He did not have the courage to stand up and do the right thing. 
This is a lesson. Every tyrant in history has these characteristics. Look and search your mind about the 20th century. Stalin. We know a lot about Stalin. I remember reading uh, the writings of his daughter that talked about him. A very insecure and weak man on one level, but an entirely cruel human being and tyrant on another. A Mao. Saddam Hussein. The rulers of North Korea. Paul Pot, you name them, all in the 20th century, they all had these characteristics. Scared, weak. And you know, that, that sometimes is, is, is the kind of leaders that we get in this world. And they're also the most cruel. You know, it takes uh, a strong person to be humble. It really does. A strong person to put up with a lot. A strong person actually to be gracious. The most merciful people and the most gracious people you will find usually are very strong within themselves. They're very little threatened by you or me. And in that sense, they're strong. I, I was thinking about this point, and uh, I remember the Purdue, uh, Purdue chicken. Do you remember the guy who used to do his own commercials? What was his name? Jim Purdue? James Purdue? Whatever his name. He always said, it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. <laughs> it takes a tough person to be a tender person. Pilate didn't have it. My friends, sometimes we need to examine our insecurities. I've always thought of insecurity and pride as being a coin. On one side is insecurity, on the other side is pride. They go together. They go together. And uh, it is up to us to be able to understand enough of human nature to get along in life and to understand ourselves. Lord, why am I always tempted to get into this argument or this fight with this person? Uh, when I'm channeling intellectually, why can't I just show some humility? No, I've got to win the point. Now, if I'm doing something that's noble, I may have to defend a point, but not so much personally. I think one of the first lessons we need to notice here is Pilate himself. But he was the instrument of God's purpose, eternal purpose in Jesus Christ. And so God uses the weakness. God uses, if you will, a man like Pilate to accomplish his eternal purposes. The second point I want to make is a bit different Jesus' crucifixion, by the way, is not fable or fairy tale or legend. What we have in the crucifixion is the stuff of history. And what we have in the crucifixion, there is historical data, empirical data that can be analyzed from a historical standpoint. Now, I make this point because of what you will hear this time of year. I'm just waiting for the New York Times editorial. It's about the only time. I quit reading the New York Times in 1987. I can remember the day. It was a Sunday. I took the thing regularly at home. And I used to get it at my office at New Paltz, and I would just push it away. Free. I just refused to read it because of the uh, many, if you will, uh, agendas that they had, always promoting agendas that I could see culturally would undermine our country. 
And so I really wasn't going to trouble myself with it. But the stuff of history, I'm waiting on their editorial at Easter. And it'll be something like this. Christians are not showing the kind of compassion and forgiveness as they have in the past. And then they'll use it for the culture warfare that's going on today. Let me go on to say that Christians, when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we're not afraid to subject everything in the New Testament to historical scrutiny. We're not afraid for critical examination of the New Testament because we believe that what we have there is real history. And if it is not, I would like for it to be exposed. But it's history. Believe me, there have been tremendous attempts to overthrow what is in the New Testament. And there are a bunch of, a bunch of if you will, scholars whose works have come to nothing through history in the last 300 years because they've attempted to debunk the New Testament pertaining to Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that people who are, who are uh, not really trained in these matters or who might hear something. I had a student one time to say to me in a class some years ago, uh, and I was teaching the history of Christian thought, and the student says, I, I, thought, I thought this whole thing was a fable. I said, well, no, no, no Christian who really is a Christian thinks that this is a fable. And actually, about 90% of all the scholars who are really good scholars, at least 90%, if not 95 or 100 almost, believes that Jesus actually lived and he died on a cross. That doesn't mean the popular media and that doesn't mean the student will not believe some of these things. But let me point to you to things that the same people who will deny the historicity of much in the New Testament and of Jesus, what they will believe in. What they will believe in. For instance, they believe that Muhammad existed, and yet we don't have any records of him for at least 100 years. Now, I believe he existed. But the evidence for early Islam is so sketchy. Furthermore, you can't even scientifically examine their records. It's blasphemy. And most scholars in the West are scared to death to do it lest they get a fatwa put on them. Christians say, come on, examine the record. The Buddha, almost everyone believes that the Buddha lived. There is nothing about the Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama of the Sakyaka clan who lived in northern India. It's pure legend. And yet almost every person, the same person who says, is Jesus a myth, will say... Uh, I really like the Buddha. I, I've been studying Thales. He is the founder of Greek philosophy. Now, there's not much to study. We don't have any writings. And the first thing that time is mentioned is about 300 years later in the writer of Herodotus. And then about 600 years later by a man by the name of Laertes. He is mentioned in Aristotle's works, all secondhand, centuries removed. And yet every history book starts with Thales, every history book on philosophy starts with Thales, and every student assumes and every professor assumes Thales lived. We have a million times more evidence for the historicity of Jesus Christ through the eyewitness New Testament accounts 
through the Greek historians, through the Roman writers. We have much more from Josephus and other people of the historicity of Jesus Christ. Let me say to this, there should not be any, any doubt about the fact that Jesus lived and he died on a cross. That is easily substantiated. But let's move to the third thing. Why then so many people not believe in Jesus Christ? Why would they accept the Buddha on all virtually no, no, no evidence and reject Jesus Christ? You know, I think of a verse in Romans. I think some of you know it. Romans is a wonderful chapter. Uh, one is a wonderful chapter. In Romans verse 18, Paul writes this. Now, he was not only a good student of human nature, he was a good student of deception. And he knew a ruse, and he knew uh, human dynamics to a great extent. And this is what he wrote. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why is it that you can believe in Thales and you can believe in the Buddha, but you can't believe in Jesus Christ? It's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. There's something within us that knows that there's a truth here that we will have to answer to at some time, someplace in our life. Talk about suppression in Freudian terms. This is it. The truth comes into us and we push it away. No one should doubt the historicity of Jesus Christ. Then why then, why then do people reject it? For that very reason. And you would too if it were not one simple thing that the Holy Spirit came to you and opened your eyes and you beheld your interest in Jesus Christ. Now, you not only believe the history of it, but you believe, in fact, the Christian interpretation of it. There are many scholars who know Jesus lived and he died, but they do not believe that he lived and died for you and for me in any way. When Christians come to this text, they realize that something magnificent is happening. The writer gives an interpretation. Luke is telling us what really happened. First of all, Jesus Christ's death on the cross was a kind of judgment. He was being judged as a criminal. But in a real sense, God is judging already the world. In Christ Jesus. Did you notice that, that little account there about where the women come and they, they wail and they cry for Jesus? And he turns around and tells them that you should wail and cry for yourself. And he says two things. Number one, that Jerusalem is now judged. The city who stoned the prophets. And in 70 A.D., this city fell to Roman's hands, and it was a very cruel. Thousands upon thousands of people were killed. It finally ended in Masada. Secondly, Jesus speaks of the rocks falling upon those in Judgment Day. 
So in a real sense, in his weakness, the world is being judged by Christ Jesus. The judge became judged in our place that we might not be judged before him in his place. Something wonderful and magnificent takes place in the cross of Christ that only the believer can actually accept and receive because it is a gift of God's Holy Spirit. We behold our interest in Jesus Christ. We believe that in the cross of Christ something glorious happened. My sins were judged there. My guilt was judged there. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that when when Jesus died on the cross, he died as the world's greatest sinner because he bore your sin and he bore my sin. It was indeed a judgment upon this world and a judgment upon sin. It was a judgment upon suffering, how much suffering we have to go through in life. You know, I don't know why God permits the suffering that he does. And I must say, after reading a book like the Brothers Karamazov, and the human imagination can offer up so many powerful arguments against belief in God through suffering. Dostoevsky piles upon pile, if you will, of incidents. Why not to believe in God because of human suffering? Nonetheless, Dostoevsky was a believer and he understood that Jesus himself, God, entered into our world and stood on the side of the sufferer and with us and suffered it to a way and a degree that we could never think or imagine. Suffering is judged on the cross. That's why there will be none in heaven. The judge was judged in our place so that we would not be condemned with the world. Belief in Christ is a gift. I uh, get my nose been out of shape when I read of inequalities over and over, and I'm not talking about so much social and economic, though that is troubling as well. But when I realize how duplicitous and how uh, uneven things are in some quarters. Let me illustrate. As an exercise in experiencing other cultures in South Florida this past week, a professor asked every student to write on a piece of paper, Jesus. Not just in a little scribble in the corner, but big letters. He gave them markers, Jesus. And the exercise was to put it on the floor and to stamp on it. One student who loved Jesus protested. And he said, I'm not doing this. I think all the other students did it. Probably some of them were real Christians. But this one student had enough presence of mind to reject it. And he accused the professor of, quote, being insensitive, I hate that word, toward me. Well, the story is, the professor did get in some trouble, but the university protected him for a while until they couldn't. Here's the point. 
Arthur Schlesinger wrote a book some years ago called books, a great historian, a liberal historian. He wrote a book called E Pluribus Unum. And he talks about the fragmentation of this country because we have so much diversity that we've lost the center. He says the problem is not in pluribus, but in unum. Everything is multicultural. We have to be culturally sensitive to other people, but let me also say we have to have a core. Everyone cannot do that which is right in their own eyes. There has to be something to keep the unity together. I would like for this professor to go to Saudi Arabia, which has no plurality, and do the same thing with Muhammad. But you know what? He would not in a million years. Why? Because Christians need the lesson less than anyone. Whatever lesson there is to have. And where it rightly belongs, this weak and pusillanimous professor would never go there. Remember the beginning. All tyrants are weak. All tyrants like courage. And I say to that professor, my friend, your lesson could well be learned, but you're preaching to the choir. But let me say something else. That professor really does not believe that Jesus died for sinners. That professor in a million years could not believe that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He would fall on his knees and beg for forgiveness for even the thought that he might bring shame and be one in the crowd that cries for Jesus' head. But the reason he couldn't is because it seems to me, in my feeble judgment, he is yet to meet the Savior. Amen.